This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who have left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marjorie Denenfalzer, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. Ms. Denenfalzer has been published widely, including Time, The Washington Post, and The National Review, and profiled by The New York Magazine. She is regularly a contributor to Fox News, CNN, CBN, and NPR, among others. She serves on the board of the Alliance for Defending Freedom, as well as the Life's Perspective Task Force. Appointed by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Marjorie is also a member of Women's Suffrage Centennial Commission. She was named one of Politico's magazine's top 50 influencers of 2018 and is counted among the Washington Examiner's top 10 political women on the move. Newsmax top 25 influential Republican women and among Newsweek's top 10 leaders on the Christian right. She's an alumni of Duke University, and she and her husband, Marty, live in Arlington, Virginia, and have five kids on top of that. Wow, Marjorie, how do you get done all that? I don't know. When you were just reading that, I thought, who is she talking about? Oh, that's me. I forgot. <laughs> Let's get started a little bit with your background, Marjorie. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. where you went to school. Yeah, well, I was blessed to grow up in eastern North Carolina, Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Fighting Pirates. ECU, East Carolina University, um, two older brothers. It will always be my home. I've lived in D.C. for all these years, and every time I come back, I still feel homesick. So very much a part of who I am and and what I love um, came from there. I grew up Episcopalian. I later converted to Catholicism. Now, when I came to D.C., I came for an internship at the Heritage Foundation just an idea to get a little taste of D.C., never with the intention of staying, which I hear so many people tell that same story. But then when I came, I really started to see some things that I thought I should lean into, they say these days. And so now, since 1988, from 1988 to here, I've been there all these years, and this is now home. Marjorie, i got to ask, if you were to go back to the 22-year-old Marjorie that moved to Washington, D.C., <laughs> or approximately that, um, what would it be like in, if I asked her, what do you, she think is going to be my life in 30 years? What do you think she would say? Oh, my gosh. I would say you're lying because every single thing that I said I would never do, I did. I would never live in Washington, D.C. I would never marry. I'm sorry about this. I'd marry, never marry a man from the north. I just thought southern man. That's who I want. <laughs> I married a man from New Jersey. Never would be anything but Episcopalian, I converted to Catholicism, would never raise children in a place like D.C. because who in the world could do that? That's what I've been doing for the last 27 years. Even if I can change my mind on the life issue, I was kind of in the midst of that at that point, I would never make that a profession in any way. I would never work for a Democrat. And so all of those things that I thought that I knew about myself um, started to change and evolve as I got older. So I think I would say to that 22-year-old girl, just wait and see what life sends your way, and then you can say what you think you'll do. You certainly were fearless for change. <laughs> Was there an influence or passion that helped you choose the career path or somebody who inspired you? Yeah, I was really blessed to have a couple of different groups of people around me. One, a group of people who were basically my age, but when I look back, I think far more mature and, frankly, 
knew what they thought um, were great uh, apologists for the Catholic faith, for one thing, but then also great apologists for different policy stances. Um, I met that group of people, sort of a friendship group that uh, were very wise and good friends at that time. Also, people around me professionally at the time, um, I felt like I was in an environment where I could freely ask for advice, be very vulnerable, you know, in all of my arrogance of youth. Um, they wouldn't embarrass me <laughs> with my questions. So, yeah, you know, the Heritage Foundation was that place where I felt like it was a great place to grow and discover and ask questions. It was really helpful. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Marjorie Denham-Falzer, president of Susan B. Anthony List. So what was your first job? My first job um, after doing an internship at the Heritage Foundation was then to go work at the Heritage Foundation in their executive branch liaison. And then I wrote a newsletter. And I, I just came to D.C. after graduating from Duke without knowing what I was going to do. I just slept on friends' floors and kind of kept looking for jobs. And these days, I'm not sure that's how our kids do that, but that's definitely how we were back then. I was not going to go home. I'm going to find my job and uh, and get a start there. Again, with only the intention of staying there, like work for the Heritage Foundation a little bit, take back to North Carolina what I'd learned, put it into work there, was what I had determined to do. But of course, I did not do that. Is there any stories that you can share early in your career that really influenced what you ended up doing today? Oh, yeah. Quite a number of them. One is when I was an intern. I uh, lived in an intern uh, townhouse in Georgetown. They called it the Wright House. It was for students that um, were conservative or Republican. And so, but that house was split between libertarian and then more traditional conservatives. So social issues were a big thing for one side of the house. The other side, it was they were more libertarian, not so much. The back and forth erupted over that summer between the social conservatives and the not social conservatives. And the, so the whole house broke up and the libertarian side won. So we had to move out and go find other housing somewhere else. So it was really one of the, I mean, I was between all that, though. I was definitely not pro-life. Didn't really know what I thought about a lot of a lot of things that were not social that that were social issues, but it made me take a vote, take a, take, take a vote literally with my feet to go find another place to live. So it was very it was very interesting. I had to decide who were the people that I felt like I would could trust more, and that was the group. Also, I'll tell you another story if you've got time, and it's when I was at the Heritage Foundation with that first job, and I had gone through the transition of being very strongly pro-choice to being very strongly pro-life. And I had an opportunity to work on the Hill for a Democrat, something that I never would do, have thought of to do or, or have as a goal in my past life. And as I was considering that, it was to manage the um, Democrat half back then of the pro-life caucus, which was a real thing back then. And I got advice from someone um, who was a vice president there at the Heritage Foundation. Um, she said, if you take that job, you are never going to get hired by another Republican in this town again. She was definitely advising against taking that job, obviously. And uh, I took the job, and she was definitely right. I was never hired again by a Republican again because I was actually literally never hired by anybody ever again <laughs> because that was at the point where we, I started uh, Susan B. Anthony list with others. So sometimes the lessons are know whose advice to ignore and set aside, <laughs> and then who whose advice do you actually follow because of – uh, where they're leading already. You know, if you had a to start over from scratch, knowing what you know now mm-hmm. from your experiences there, um, what would you do it differently? 
Oh, yeah. Almost everything. But it is kind of interesting how Providence uh, kind of weaves itself in despite our failures. When I left the Hill, it was my um, determination to uh, grow the Susan B. Anthony list. But the beginnings were so incredibly humble, and that was my decision to take on something that basically had no funding. I know how to do that now. I feel like looking back, I know how to start a brand-new organization with a great idea, a way to test the idea, a way to bring in people from the very beginning, bring funding in from the very beginning, and not think just a good idea is going to sell itself because, unfortunately, it just usually doesn't work that way. I would have organized it completely differently from the very beginning, but, you know, again, maybe uh, maybe that's not the greatest advice to give everyone because clearly it worked out in the situation where the Susan B. Anthony list did grow despite that lack of cohesion and funding in the beginning. And it really did uh, meet an, uh, a question that the culture was asking for at that time. So, oh, my. And that's just one thing, Aileen, that I would do differently. There are so many other things. But I really believe very strongly that – that we learn more from our mistakes usually than we do from our successes. That's really good advice. Kids today seem to want to have this very strict plan. And uh, so let me ask you, how old were you when you started Susan B. Anthony? I was 25, and there were some other women that preceded me in thinking about this idea. A beautiful Quaker woman, Democrat, Catholics, a couple of other, you know, people not with any faith at all. And just different people that all came together and said, this um, uh, women's movement is not representing us. And there are so many women on this side uh, speaking for the life issue, saying this is the appropriate reflection, this is the appropriate advocacy for women to embrace our children, uh, affirm women, and uh, reach back to our suffragist roots. So um, we all kind of came to that separately and started it then. Yeah, so I was pretty young. Um, but a lot of things go along with being young and kind of boundless determination and kind of fearless, fearless and honestly <laughs> not very realistic in some ways. But uh, it was it, that was the time to do it. I'm speaking with Marjorie Denenfalzer, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. Coming up, we'll discuss how Marjorie keeps herself motivated, even facing a difficult situation. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marjorie Devin Falzer, president of Susan B. Anthony List. So let's get to that question, Marjorie. How do you motivate yourself and stay motivated? I mean, mm-hmm. especially today, I mean, trying to work on policy issues, change oh, yeah. uh, people's mind, it can't be simple. Oh, yeah, it's not. Um, but I know, I know you. I know um, in your professional life and in your motherhood, it's the same. Same is same for me. I think, frankly, working in politics in, in elections is a roller coaster. No matter how you look at it, you're not going to win every election. It's a great lesson in life that you won't win every battle that you move into. I think a couple of things. One is I've been surrounded by such good leaders and wise people that I really believe that to be a very good leader, you need to know how to follow well. So I learned early on the type of people that I wanted to follow and emulate in success and failure, how they behave. So because we learn, I think, more from our failures than our successes, it's important, just as it's important to learn how to succeed well, how to be a good victor, we have to really learn also how to fail well, how to fail forward, how to lose graciously as well as win graciously. 
Um, and I think those have been some of the best, most cohesive moments that I've had professionally over these years is dealing with that loss. Now, believe you me, it hurts. And I do not like losing. You don't get into this business to lose. You get into it to win. But what it helps you do is bring everybody together, cut out the fat, figure out what you actually must do, the most important thing you must do, sharpen the saw, get back in there, and fight as hard as you possibly can to make up for the gain that you lost. And what that does is it objectively moves you forward for sure. But also the people that are watching you know that this is not just about how we feel when we win or we lose. It's about something that transcends us, bigger than us. So it's important to get up and get moving again really fast. How would your staff describe your leadership style? (laughs) We've just been going through all this uh, staff training and cohesion and reading some of these leadership, you know, going through kind of a leadership thing. Um, I think that they know that um, that I have a vision and I've tried to effectively cast a vision about where we need to go. I think they also know that I really depend upon um, expertise on a very detailed level that I don't have. And frankly, again, sort of the things that you don't have, if you understand that and realize it, then you've, you build a great, you can build a fantastic team, which is what I have. Um, because all the things that I'm not, they fill in for. The things that I do well, they help make, um, make it so that I'm able to project all that as best that I can. So I think uh, I'm a mother before I was a professional, um, or at least it all came at the same time. And I think it's my job to find the best in everybody and help bring it out in the same way that you do want to do with everybody that you know. But when you're definitely driving for it, a specific goal, um, each team member there needs to know who they are, why they came to the tank came to the project and they need encouragement in that every day and that's what I try to do. So has there been a leader in particular that you admire that uh, maybe gave you some great advice mm-hmm. other than the great VP over at the Heritage Foundation <laughs> that you didn't listen to? Well it's interesting that definitely all along the way I mean so many um, and so many in different areas there is one that was also at the Heritage uh, Foundation at that time he was the head of policy review back then. His name's Adam Myerson. He's at the Philanthropy Roundtable now. Um, he doesn't even remember this when I have reminded him of it later in life. But I remember going to him because I admired him so much and asked him for professional advice. And he's like, I don't, I don't know. What do you do well? And um, so I try to think about what I do well. What do you want to do? Well, I thought I wanted to write. You know, I kind of wanted to do what he did, journaling. And then he said, well, what's the thing that you do well that's missing, something that other people are not doing? And I would say I thank him for it now, and I think that that is one of the pieces of advice that was most helpful because to try to do something that we see other people do well, so we see that would be really cool. I love the life that that person is having. I'd like to kind of live that life, and I find it very interesting. It's very, very different from this important piece is missing. Somebody's got to fill that gap. Now, I'm not sure exactly how to do it, but I think I better begin to do it using the skills to feed that mission. So it's really a way of saying, what am I called to do? What is my vocation? Rather than what is it that I want? Where do I think I fit? Because I've, I'm kind of drawn to that. The, the, the process of discernment about what we're supposed to do is important. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Marjorie Devenfalzer, President Susan B. Anthony List. So what do you value and admire that leaders you worked with in the past? I mean, has there been something that 
was the way that an organization was led mm-hmm. or the way that you have faced a situation within your own organization. And mm-hmm. leaders can be above you, beside you, and below you. Yeah, that's right. That is a great example of what gives an organization heart and soul. Yeah, that that is so true. Again, I think to be a great leader, you need to know who to follow. And sometimes the people you're following have a different title than you do that others see as not as elevated, but are very, very worthy of following. The qualities that I really admire and that I've found in several people, people like um, Carly Fiorina, people like Jeb Bush, uh, way back Jack Kemp, there are a variety of qualities um, in in these human beings, but one they all shared, and that was a an ability to be very transparent. There's no, there was no fear in revealing who they were and what their experiences were, what their failings and what their successes and where they wanted to go were. And I guess you could say there's no fear. <laughs> um, there's a fear in everyone, but they'd overcome it enough. There wasn't a lot of concern about what other people thought. And we as adults think that we perhaps don't, uh, that is not a big a factor as it is than that we would like, than we would like to think it is, but it is every day. Our vanity can control us all the time. <laughs> what other people think uh, is not just for teenagers. It can be for 80-year-old, 50-year-old, 60-year-olds. Um, those are the qualities, I think, and truly more important than any of it. Uh, and, and what leads to those good qualities is loving a cause, loving a thing um, that's bigger than you and that is uh, trans- and transforms you just by engaging in it. And I see that over and over. I see it in leaders in the church as well. Pope John Paul would be a great example of that. It's hard to uh, fake passion and uh, in authentic uh, commitment to something. I'm going to switch things around a little bit here. What do you think is the most significant barrier today for female leadership in political positions? Mm -hmm. We're we're not moving in the right direction. The needle a little bit last... Mm -hmm. uh, last election, but overall, our country is like almost dead last. Yeah. I think there are external and internal barriers, and they feed off each other. I've been a part of a um, Politico project um, called Women Rule that has explored these topics that I think are very interesting. It's worth picking up some of their podcasts if you're interested in, in digging in. I think the external barriers are that just people keep doing the way they usually do. And if it's a male-dominated field, well, they're just going to keep doing what they know and keep doing that. Sometimes there are nefarious reasons. Sometimes it's just habit. So kicking a habit of being insulated uh, and not letting the new folks in is a really bad habit that doesn't feed any of our causes well, whether it's economy, whether it's a, a, a specific cause in politics, whether it's being a candidate. Um the other is the internal barrier, and I think that when women haven't been in certain roles, uh, we haven't played it out yet, so we don't necessarily have the confidence of having done it. I love to point to women who have done incredible things and in being some of the first women to be elected and, and the qualities to emulate in those women. Um, so if, even if we haven't done it ourselves, we see it can be done. So I think for women candidates especially, it's really important to talk to successful women candidates. Uh, then you can see the pathway. You, it makes total sense. There are unique questions that women have that men sometimes don't have. Um, there are unique gifts that women have that often men don't have. Um, the, what, what has really helped me along the way, and I'm in an environment, it's a, you know, kind of a conservative male world, is to behave in a way that I want to be, and eventually I've gotten there. In other words, 
behave in a way that I know that what I have to offer is either equal or better than some of the things already at the table. So when there's that resistance, we don't let our internal fears overcome um, what we have to offer the group. Uh, that's kind of the, you know, and the advice that I give my girls <laughs> is be great at what you do and make sure that you are following someone who helps you open the door, provide you another seat at the table, and don't see the differences as other people do. I'm speaking with Marjorie Denenfalzer, president of Susan B. Anthony List. Coming up, we'll talk about how marrying your passion with your skills can really drive your career. You're listening to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marjorie Denenfalzer, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. Uh, technology is rapidly in, you know, advancing these days with between cloud computing, quantum, uh, 5G, um, and has really changed the landscape, especially the landscape as it pertains to our laws. Mm-hmm. Has our laws kept pace? Well, we're sitting in a room that I'm very reminded of the reality of what you just said, the complicated networks and the complicated uh, machinery in which we do our jobs um, is the reality of our everyday life, um, regardless of where you are, where you are in your own uh, work, regardless of what your job is. I think right now the biggest problem that we face is the shutting down or the censoring or however you want to uh, look at it of of um, social media big dogs like Facebook, Google, Twitter, all of those. And this issue is one that is made for good and strange bedfellows, left, right, center, American. All you have to do is be in this country and believe in free um, free speech and uh, believe in, the, in the, how important uh, the debate in the public square is to make sure that these giants of social media are, are providing a level playing field for all actors in business, in politics, um, policy, no matter how you look at it. I think that is probably where right now law is not keeping pace with technology, at least on that level. Well, do you think people understand that when they do a query on the Internet, whether it's mm-hmm. Bing, Google, or whatever, mm-hmm. that the results they come back, somebody hasn't helped put an order to it? Yeah, no, I mean— we, the, the things that we don't see are the things that we be, should be most concerned about and where we ought to be digging in on the policy level. What's the algorithm that, uh, that is created that's updated every single day at Facebook or wherever that gets uh, a request to you specifically? And how did that happen? What does it look like? Um, was, it, was that algorithm created to exclude you in some way unfairly? Uh, because of your viewpoint, because of your, uh, because of qualities about you that are beyond your control, it's definitely something to think about. And obviously, clearly, I think we're all concerned about security, and uh, within the United States, in terms of all of that information that's out there. But then also, of course, how that that information is used by other countries that have laws that are even worse than ours, that are not, that are definitely not keeping up. Places like like China and others uh, that don't have the desire to even get to a fair law in that regard. It is definitely an area where it's not my area of expertise, but I can tell you, we we see it every day in my work, and you, Eileen, and and everybody listening, whether we know it or not, are dealing with it every day in our personal lives. You know, I I think it was Tim Cook that actually just recently said that some technology advances aren't worth the Mm -hmm. risk of your privacy. 
there was an article today on I forgot what magazine it was, but it was about the ring doorbell and mm-hmm. the fact that you know basically all this video, all this data is out there for a lot of people to take a look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do people understand that you know the convenience of having that doorbell? Yeah. That allows you to make sure that your Amazon packages aren't stolen. Yeah. Uh, also kind of lets everybody know who's going and where and coming in your house. Yeah, I think it's terrifying. I mean, I terrifying is the way to not persevere. Terrifying is the way that, we, that won't work. But we need to feel a little sense of urgency about getting this done. My, my grandmother was an enormous influence on me and everything that I did. And she uh, she was uh, always raising the flag of concern about where the computer world was taking us. That's how she referred to it you know, a million years ago, that the um, taking daily life outside of the personal and having everything be in electronic communication was going to really change um, not just what we read and what we look at, but how we are with each other. That was always her greatest fear. And I and I always thought, oh, Grana. Don't worry about it. It's fine. People make computers. They're not going to have any control over us. And now she's in heaven now, I believe, but uh, she's nodding her head like, (laughs) okay, you guys need to get it right. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Marjorie Devenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. So I'm going to change it around again Mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, Tell me about an accomplishment or a mistake Mm -hmm. that mid-career, late-career that really shaped, you know, where you stand on and, and, and who you are as a leader today? Mm-hmm. Well, it's so fundamental that I'm not really sure what category you put this in, but when I was a Duke student and I was a college Republican, I was a college Republican uh, chairman, um, and the way they handled the abortion issue was they had a pro-life chair and a pro-choice chair. So I was the pro-choice chair. Now, my mistake in being pro-choice I see as a, a personal mistake because I read it wrong, because of my own experiences in life, um, because of my empathy for women, because I um, uh, had a strong sense of who I was and how I wanted to protect that. I had good reasons for, be, for calling myself pro-choice. And yet when I look back, I know it was a mistake uh, in, in my own thinking um, because I had a pretty dramatic uh, conversion that had nothing to do with my thoughts about religion, it had everything to do with what I thought about the dignity of the human being, the way I wanted to be treated. So um, when that view changed, everything changed in terms of where I was headed and, and uh, how I thought about um, my, my future. Uh, and um, so even though I didn't have any desire to make it part of my profession in the future, it affected how I thought about so many things, but it, I, I think, frankly, I fought it being a, a professional decision, um, but in the end, it was, and it changed, it changed me. But um, I really believe that it has made a difference in in changing others. Now, even if people don't agree with me and they haven't come completely um to the in the pro life direction i do believe that there is much more consensus in the nation now that is forming than there ever was before and i'm very happy to have been a part of that process so far it sounds like you married your passion with your skills do you think that has been able to be the secret to really fueling your success no oh, without question you know when you 
have the blessing of being able to say what I do naturally flows from who I am, then you're not talking about a job anymore. You're talking about just living. And so uh, that living obviously has to be balanced with your priorities in your life. But in my family life, it is an extension of also my family life. So what I'm really blessed by is that it all fits together. Uh, The thing that I love, the thing that I'm driven to do is – uh, supported and shared in many ways, not not all, not monolithically, but in in my family. And you know when you know I, when you see another person living for what they, living for their passion, working for their passion, you learn things that don't necessarily have to do with the passion itself. You learn how uh, I hope that I want my I want my children to see is that if you are truly passionate about a cause, then it's so much bigger than you. It so transcends you that it's worth sacrifice, it's worth some suffering, it's worth giving up some things for the greater good. So I'm happy to have that in my life. Now, you've accomplished so much, and you have five kids. How do you balance? <laughs> Laughing. <laughs> I mean, truly, uh, moms and dads, but moms, like, there's no way getting through this life unless you can laugh at your failures and your successes. And and I just enjoy their company. You know, when they're all really little, it's hard, intense work all the time, no question about the sacrifices, and it's no question that little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. We hear that all the time. It's true. But they have made me so much better, I hope. I want that to be the case, especially with my child with disabilities. Um, I think, frankly, if we hadn't had the child with disabilities, I don't know that we could have gotten through because she has made everybody better. She's brought cohesion to the family that I don't believe that we would have had. Um and frankly, all of the things that I do are so much more exciting because I get to share it with them. Now, I am not saying that things have gone perfectly. I would be so wrong. We've had disasters. Um, but, you know, that's a normal family. And um, what I really appreciate from them is that they've always allowed me to fold this into everything that we do. It's such great advice. And you get on Facebook, as we were talking about before, everybody you never see somebody having a bad day, you know, sitting on the couch or opening a bag of potato <laughs> chips. It's usually what you know, wonderful no. thing that is happening. Exactly. That's the Christmas letter I want to write. Like, oh, my gosh, let me tell you about the seven disasters for seven people in this family. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's just that's a glass of wine and a long conversation at, in the evening. Most people don't want to share all that, but, but there's no question. Um, the, 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 the parent failures. I think are probably the more formative than any professional failures or successes. Um, I think those are the most uh, those are the most teachable moments I've ever lived in. Anybody who has four or five kids, I have four. You mm-hmm. know, yes, mm-hmm. I admit. One time I forgot to pick somebody up. You know, it's- <laughs> oh, I can top that any day. <laughs> I'm speaking with Marjorie Denenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government, Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Marjorie Denenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony's List. So what is it like in the day Mm -hmm. and the life of the president of Susan B. Anthony's List? What do you Mm -hmm. normally do all day long? Well, every day is different. It's just really true. I do travel a lot because fundraising is a top priority. Without it, uh, nothing runs. Um, 
So the the travel is every almost every week. Uh, so it's all that's always thrown in the middle of of what else, but of everything else. But often, so then when I'm traveling, I'm also there's always going to be something exploding or that must be done related to the hill. So calling to the leader's office or to um, the head of our the pro life caucus in the Senate, um, handling everything that we need to handle at the White House right now, which is a ton. And then now we're rolling into the 2020 elections, and so that is without question the highest priority that we have. So there's so much uh, that in, in the planning stages for that. Um, right now, all of our field teams are 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 uh, are they're, oh, they are all rolling up in all of the battleground states uh, for Senate races and the presidency. So each day, there's some bit of each of those things, and then. You know what's really important. Everybody who who works at all knows this: the the uh, part that you're devoting to building your own team to make sure that the engine stays well greased and moving forward is really important. So there has to be some of that every day too. And then of course every day I talk at three thirty to my daughter. Uh, we have a check in at three thirty every day, and then everything that has to do with each member of the family is all sprinkled in and all of that. There are kind of really no walls or divisions left. <laughs> in the way I do it, uh, but it's um, it's kind of crazy, but fantastic. So, what are your top priorities for uh, the end of twenty twenty at uh, the twenty nine end of twenty nineteen? Yeah. I'm sorry, and the beginning of twenty twenty. It's it, this mm-hmm. is a big year. Yeah, yeah. So, we have a few million dollars left to raise for this year, so and that will fuel the uh, the, the continuing building of several of our state operations. We have a door to door canvassing field team in all the battleground states, our top battleground states. So raising that money to keep fueling that team, making sure that we've got the best voter modeling uh, happening. We have to perfect that every time to make sure we're talking to the right people. Um, And then preparing for 2020. Um, Those 2020 elections are going to be the most um, impactful votes that will be taken in decades. And so it's uh, kind of, it's pretty much, Nothing even compares to how important that is in um, in my day-to-day life right now at work. <laughs> You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Radio, part of Federal News Network. And our guest today is Marjorie Denenfelser, president of the Susan B. Anthony List. So, Marjorie, what do you think the biggest challenge that our political leaders face uh, today? I mean, it. let's face it, you know, Washington, D.C., has changed a lot mm-hmm. since you and I started out. Oh, yeah. And I worked on, on Capitol Hill when I first started, and I, I felt like it was much more of a give and take. Mm-hmm. It was. Um, I mean, think of it. I worked for a pro-life Democrat, bringing all the pro-life Democrats together with the pro-life Republicans for a, for a vote. There's nothing like that now on, on most issues. I, it's the most polarized time in American history. Uh, polarization is... Painful. I think, especially as a woman, we carry it around internally sometimes. But also, polarization produces clarity. There are definite choices to be made, and so that's also a gift. As hard as it is right now, and it is reflected in family life. It's reflected everywhere we go, um, in D.C., in the halls of Congress, in the presidential election, in the Senate, everywhere. However, it can be uh, a point at which we better define who we are. Uh, and then I really believe it's really important to be uh, electing, and I see several Senate races where this is the case, some people who are true statesmen and women who are able to start bringing back the era of consensus 
especially in it, on the issue that I'm dealing with. So I got to ask you, mm-hmm. um, if you were to meet somebody who would like to follow in your footsteps, <laughs> um, what you know, three pieces of advice would you give that individual? Yeah, um, I haven't thought about this, but I'm going to think about it really quick because I think it's important. So I think I would uh, say make a very clear plan about what you want to accomplish, as specific as you can possibly make it, and then be very flexible. <laughs> so insist upon clarity and then make a habit of flexibility every day. Um, it, it's that that rigidity is good, um, vision is great, but dealing with real life is uh, just as important and, and more important. Second, I would make sure, I, I, because I'm older and because I understand the value of resources, I would say raise the money first and then spend it. <laughs> Very important in, politi- in politics, which is used to going into debt. Um, we started out with basically nothing, and now we've got a, a good uh, budget, but um, trying to get a hold of the finances is really, really important. And third, also my dad, my dad's advice is uh, is don't let that, very important things sit on your desk for more than a day if it's important and you have to be ruthless about what's important and then the first era of importance if it's important do it know what needs doing today based on your goal and know what needs doing based on tomorrow and a subset of that is realize what you should be doing and what you should not be doing You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Marjorie Demenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony List. Marjorie, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some really valuable advice. I'm Aileen Black, and thanks for listening. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit Shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. Your favorite band's about to play a sold out show and you definitely got tickets and drinks. Now hurry and make it back to your spot. Pass this person and that person about 20 more. Ooh, watch out for feet. Hey. Just keep going. A little further. Oh, there's your friend. Over here. Right where you want to be. Close enough to see the set list. And they're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.